Chapter Two of Quintus Oakes, a detective story. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Quintus Oakes, a detective story by Charles Ross Jackson. Chapter Two Quintus Oakes at Home. It was, therefore, a great deal in the nature of a surprise when, a few days after parting with Moore, I received a note at my apartments by messenger requesting me to call on Mr. Quintus Oakes that evening on professional business. It was written in a brisk, courteous style, but made no mention of Dr. Moore. Was it possible that I was to meet Oakes through other channels? I realized that my profession of the law might give many opportunities for such an interview with him, so I ceased to wonder and started up Broadway just before the hour appointed. I turned into the long, dimly-lighted side street near Long Acre Square and found that the number designated was a bachelor apartment house. It was where I had lost him the day of the fire. Taking the elevator to the third floor, I was directed to the door and admitted by a Japanese servant, a bright-eyed fellow of about twenty. He was dressed in our fashion and spoke English well, the kind of chap that one sees not infrequently nowadays in the service of men who have seen the world, know how to live, and how to choose for personal comfort. It was evident that I was expected, for I was at once led into the room and there met by Oakes himself. The instant he saw me, a look of recognition and mild surprise came over his face, and as he shook hands he said, "'We have met before, at the fire the other day, Mr. Stone. "'Won't you please step into my sanctum? "'We can be more comfortable there.' "'He led me through a short hall, into a large, airy room, "'furnished as half-lounging room, half-office. "'There was a large, flat-topped mahogany desk in the centre, "'with a sofa and several upholstered chairs, "'evidently for use as well as ornament. "'On the walls were pictures of value.' views of foreign places and oil paintings that a mere novice could see were works of art. There was that in the room which suggested education and refinement. A telephone was on the desk, and loose papers partly written upon bore evidence that the detective had been busy at work when I arrived. At a motion from my host I seated myself in one of the large armchairs facing him, while he remained standing. I saw that he was a man about thirty-eight or forty years old, straight as an arrow and splendidly proportioned he was dressed in a well-fitting grey suit the light was from above and oakes's face showed well the clear-cut nose and generous mouth of the energetic american he looked at me critically with deep-set steady blue eyes then smiled slightly in a well-controlled dignified manner mr stone i am very glad that you were able to come to-night make yourself at home he said I made an appropriate answer of some kind, and then Oakes took the seat near me and began without further ceremony. I have arranged that our friend Dr. Moore shall come here this evening. Meanwhile, I will inform you briefly of the subject in hand. A few months ago, Mandel and Sturgeon, the attorneys, whom you doubtless know, consulted me regarding the unpleasant happenings at the mansion of one Odell Mark, upstate, in the town of Mona. Now Mandel and Sturgeon suggested also that you might care to help unravel the matter, acting as their legal representative. 
I have completed my arrangements for starting on the case, and am particularly glad to find that you are a friend of Dr. Moore, and that you had expressed to him a desire to enter into some such affair. I assure you, however, that Mandel and Sturgeon had previously spoken of you, and that this offer was coming as a business proposition. The fact that you and Dr. Moore had spoken of such a trip is merely a coincidence. He spoke with a well-modulated voice, and a fluency that told of the intelligence of the man. His eyes fixed on me, but not in an embarrassing manner. It was the habit of observation that prompted their concentration. That was obvious. His forehead was high and slightly furrowed, with two vertical wrinkles between the eyebrows. His face was mobile and expressive at times, then suddenly calm. In my very brief observation, I knew that he was able to govern his expression well. In the days that were coming, I learned that in the presence of danger or possible trickery, that face became stony and immovable, a mask that talked and commanded, while hiding the suppressed energy of the man. The bell rang before Oakes could proceed with his statement, and Dr. Moore was shown in. His coming enlivened us both, and after a few words of greeting I found the opportunity, and said, "'Mr. Oakes, it is not exactly clear to me why Mandel and Sturgeon recommended me as their representative. They have so many men in their office whom they might use in that capacity. Doubtless you will hear from them yourself before we go, Mr. Stone. Meantime, I may explain. You were in their employ at one time, I believe. Yes, a great many years ago. They think that some legal matters might arise, where a man on the spot will be of value, and it seems best that their representative with me should be one not easily identified as working with them. You know, Mr. Stone, we are not advertising our mission. I have been in Mona as Mr. Clark, their agent, looking after the mansion and other properties, and if I return there, it must be under some business pretext, or people will suspect me. You, being an independent party, not known as connected with the firm in any way, can accompany me in the role of a friend on an outing, or as a possible purchaser, you see, we are trying to solve a mystery, so the less attention we attract, the better. I see. So you have already been there, Mr. Oakes? Yes, gentlemen. I will tell you about this affair very briefly now. You will learn more later if you enter upon this solution with me. The mansion was originally the property of George Mark, who died some years ago, leaving it to his two sons, Winthrop and Odell. Both were single men at that time, but Odell married a couple of years ago, and persuaded his brother to sell his share of the property to him. Winthrop, who was the older, did not care to part with it, but eventually disposed of his interests to his brother, who immediately moved into the place with his bride. The old servants were still in charge, and everything had been kept up to a high standard of excellence, although no one had lived there since the old man died. Odell had travelled some, and lived mostly in the city, while Winthrop had been engrossed in amassing a large fortune in speculation. He had resided in Mona, keeping his own place, saying he did not care for the mansion as a home after his father died. "'Then why did he not care to give up his interest to his brother?' asked Moore. "'That is as yet a mystery, but as he was a great businessman, it is supposed by some that he saw opportunities to convert the vast grounds into town lots, and sell at a great advance some day, when Mona should boom, as the town will sooner or later, owing to its natural advantages. He told many, however, that it was merely a sentiment with him, the place having belonged in colonial times to the family, 
Be that as it may, however, he finally sold, and never would buy it back again, even after the mystery had made it practically valueless. His brother offered to sell it back for next to nothing, but Winthrop only laughed and refused. This conduct seemed to dispose of the supposition that he was in any way responsible for the occurrences which had such a depressing effect on the value of the property. "'Then, if mixed up, he had a deeper motive,' said I. "'Yes, if he has really been involved in the mystery at all. "'You must remember, however,' said Oakes, "'that his story may be true. "'Having disposed of his share of the property, "'he may have seen no reason for bothering with it again, "'at least until it was clear of the depressing occurrences "'which had lowered its value from half a million to practically nothing.' "'Goodness, what were these mysteries?' said Moore, with a feigned shudder. "'Evidently they are unpopular.' Oakes proceeded slowly. "'They consist of a series of assaults on those who have occupied the house, "'and they are conducted in such a way that detection has been impossible. "'One evening Mrs. Mark was heard to shriek in her bedroom, "'and when found by her husband was insane from fright. "'In her ravings she spoke of a terrible thing choking her, and of a swishing sound. She never regained her reason, and is now in an insane asylum. Alienists at first thought that she had an experience common to those going mad, that she had been subject to a delusion. But evidences were against this, as she had in no way shown any signs of mental trouble before. While she was being cared for at the mansion, the two nurses in charge had similar experiences. They reported hearing a tread on the stairs one night, and of seeing a figure disappear into the dining-room. One stated up and down that it was a woman. The patient was removed from the place. Then Mr. Odell Mark received such a scare one night that he packed up and left the mansion for good. He was assaulted by an invisible party from behind, and only escaped after a severe struggle. Whoever, or whatever, assaulted him disappeared in an instant, and he swore that he heard the closing of a door somewhere downstairs. Everything was done to keep the truth quiet, but of course it leaked out, and the place has been regarded as haunted ever since. The servants left, save a few of the oldest, who live away from the mansion under a separate roof, and have never seen anything unusual. That sounds very thrilling, I said, but the affair may all be founded on nervous dread and hysteria. "'So I thought,' said Oakes. "'I went up there alone recently, however, "'and am glad to say that I got back alive. "'What? Did you see it?' "'No, gentlemen, I did not. "'There was nothing to see, "'but I learned enough to know that murder stalks there in the mansion, "'and the mystery is a deep one, "'and my conduct nearly cost me my life. "'I have faced danger often, "'but I never faced an invisible violence.' or had such a fight for my life as I had at the mansion about three weeks ago. Quintus Oakes was speaking earnestly, and we both were deeply interested. That the celebrated detective should have met such an experience placed the tale outside the realm of fiction. He was a calm man, used to facing danger, and not one to be easily deceived or frightened. "'Great Scott!' said Moore. "'You must have had a fine time. Tell us about it.' It must have been what the boys call a lullapalooza of a time. I had to smile at my friend, able and successful, and already a professional man of reputation, but ever fond of an occasional slang expression, as a relief from the care with which he was usually burdened. He was well-to-do, but had been no idler, and knew the meaning of hard work. Yes, said Oakes, I had a fine time. 
At this moment the telephone on the desk rang, and Oakes reached forward and placed the receiver to his ear. After a few words of business he replaced it, but I felt a curious sensation of something missing, something unusual. His hand had shot forward and shook the hook, and deposited the receiver thereon in one quick, instantaneous movement. The action had been so exact that the contact had given rise to no sound save the after-tinkle of the bell. Moore noticed it, too, and looked at me, as much to say, How was that for measuring distance? Then Oakes wheeled so as to face us again. Excuse me for the interruption. Now I will tell you my story in a few words. End of chapter 2